From Community Public Radio, this is the CPR News. From New York, I'm Don DeBar. Today we go to Moscow to speak with Mark Sloboda, an analyst that uh, sometimes lectures at Moscow State University, is a uh, former uh, naval, uh, uh, term, naval officer, uh, former U.S. Navy guy, um, and uh, he's an American living in Moscow. And we're going to get an update on the uh, stuff around uh, Ukraine that we were talking about last week. Mark, if you want to pick up where we left off and bring us up to date. Great. Don, thanks for having me. It's uh, always an honor and a pleasure to be on CPR. And likewise. Okay. Um, well, the uh, situation in uh, you know Ukraine continues to gather tension. Um, the um, the the West, the U.S. continues to uh, scream about uh, an imminent Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, that hasn't changed. U.S. diplomats are being pulled out of, uh, of Ukraine and out of Belarus um, because uh, Belarus in particular, because first of all, they have uh, the U.S. and Belarus do not exactly have good relations right now. And second of all, because um, Russian troops are also gathering in Belarus, uh, basically uh along the northern border of Ukraine, as well as, uh, you know, the uh, eastern border with Russia. The um, Zelensky regime in Kiev uh, evidently is having a bit of a row with Washington. Um, The word from Zelensky is that he knows better what is happening, that there is no threat of an imminent uh, invasion of any sort by Russia. Um, uh, and that the Russian force level, uh, at least directly on the Ukrainian border, has not effectively changed much since 2014. Uh, he is upset that uh, the uh, the panic, uh, as he calls it, the hysteria being created by Western media and governments, is destabilizing uh, Ukraine, uh, creating panic there. Um, uh, including um, economic crisis, um, uh, problems with the currency, and uh, foreign investment leaving the country, and um, all kinds of of economic uh, damage, uh, panic buying, and the sort. Um, It is generally assumed by analysts that Zelensky uh, is – Afraid that the U.S. is hyping up the possibility of a Russian intervention in Ukraine in order to pressure him to fulfill the Minsk Accords, um, which the the regime in Kiev has no intention of ever doing so. Uh, And directly to that point, um, the head of the Kiev regime uh, now Security Council uh, spoke to the press uh, in the last few days, Alexei Danilov, uh, who was once uh, heavily involved in racketeering uh, in Ukraine um, uh, back in the 1990s. And um, speaking to the uh, press, 
uh, he said that the fulfillment of the Minsk agreement, again, an agreement that has been agreed by everyone and still receives lip service that is the only way out of the crisis, um, and um, uh, is enshrined in international law by a UN Security Council resolution, which the US and France and Germany all agreed to, and, and Kiev signed on the line, and it is a political reconciliation uh, between the regime in Kiev, backed by the US, and the Donbass republics, backed by Russia, to, to politically reconcile from the events of 2014, when the last legitimate democratically elected government government of the whole country um, uh, was overthrown uh, by an openly U.S.-backed, violent, and unconstitutional putsch. And the Minsk agreements are supposed to politically reconcile the two terms of the country. However, they have sat unfulfilled since 2015 because Kiev has taken not even the most basic steps necessary to do so is to even sit down and talk with the political leaders of the Donbass, whom they have they refer to everyone in the Donbass as terrorists. In fact, they declared it an anti-terrorist operation uh, uh, or pro-Russian separatists as it's usually dehumanized. Um, but they refuse to sit down and talk. They refuse an amnesty. They refuse the uh, federalization uh, that would be required to be passed through the RADA, which seems pretty much like a political impossibility considering the hyper-nationalist uh, makeup of the Rada uh, these days uh, from, from the Kiev regime. So um, it, it, it has stalled, and that is one of Russia's primary concerns, is that uh, they see that everyone is paying lip service to the Minsk Accords, but no one is actually fulfilling it, while the de facto uh, NATOization, the, the increasing military and presence uh, of NATO on and the ground in Ukraine continues and continues. And Danilov said, the fulfillment of the Minsk agreement means the country's destruction. Um, and then he went on to say, if they insist on talking about the West, he said, if they insist on the fulfillment of the Minsk agreements, uh, and he says, if the society doesn't accept those agreements, it could lead to a very difficult internal situation, and Russia counts on that. Well, it's a rather interesting statement if the society doesn't accept these agreements because the polls in Ukraine, you know, I mean, Zelensky was actually elected uh, on the fact that he, uh, the idea, the promise that he would bring peace to the country. Of course, he's done the exact right. opposite, and his 75 percent approval rating has crashed, crashed down into the, the low 20s, 20 percent right. uh, approval as a, as a result of that. But polls in the Ukraine clearly show that a majority of Ukrainian people want peace, right? And, and they are largely on board with the Minsk Accord. So who exactly is he talking about, and why is it dangerous? Of course, what he is talking about is the far right ultranationals, banderite militias that are now, uh, you know, they have political movements, they still have the, uh, um, the coherent uh, militias that are separate paramilitary units, but they are also, uh, we're talking Azov, right sector, C-14, uh, and others. Much better they're armed now, though, right? They're much better armed what? now than they were when they much first Much better armed. Well, they're, they're, you know, they're government salary. They're right. integrated into the police, right. the right. military, right. the security services. Right. That's right. Um, the National Guard is almost entirely composed right. of, of them. Um, and uh, they are also... Spread throughout the mainstream Maidan political parties. All right, uh, Andre Perubi, you know, 
head neo-Nazi uh, in, in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, he, he was literally the founder of the reverse name Social Na- Social Nationalist Party of right. Ukraine, um, uh, you know, not too long ago. And then with he was involved with Svoboda. Right. Um, the guy is, a, you know, is a, a, a complete unrepentant. I, I, it's 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 a misnomer to refer to Peruby as a neo-Nazi because right. he's more of an old school. Yeah, right. Band right fascist <laughs> Nazi, right? right. Um, <laughs> Listen, know, just uh, one other thing. Just one other thing. Person. Just one other thing. I just want to I just want to clarify for people uh, to correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not unfair to say essentially that these militias serve the same purpose and and most likely uh, are really strong adherents ideologically to the SS, the role yes. that they played in Germany in, in the 1930s and early 40s. I would say more the brown shirts at this point, although uh, they're certainly on the way to becoming the full official USS. Um, they're, they're definitely on their way there. They, they have integrated so far. Peruby is the number two person on Poroshenko, the, the, the previous president, the candy oligarch uh, president of Ukraine, his so-called European Solidarity Party. And he was speaker of the RADA, uh, up until a, a of the Pucharada up until a couple of years ago. Um, so, you know, this is when the Ukrainian military fell apart, defected or refused to fight in the Donbass when they were met with crowds of, of people saying, what are you doing here? Right. We, you know, <laughs> we're, um, uh, and, and largely turned around or defected or were disbanded. It was these far right battalions that were sent. Uh, to launch this uh, punitive campaign to try to force the people of the Donbass to accept the uh, overthrow of the government in Kiev. And that has snowballed eventually. Uh, you know, the Kiev regime purged the military, what was left of it, got control of it. Um, you know, and their, re- their response to, you know, being greeted with protesters was to simply sit outside the cities and start lobbing artillery shells right. and airstrikes in. Right. right? You know, and that, that led to, you know, uh, the initial conflict which ended badly uh, for Kiev, and it's largely uh, it's largely presented in the West as if the Russian military crossed the border on the Donbass and defeated the Ukrainian military. That is completely false. Right. Russia did provide uh, funding and arms uh, and training for uh, the um, the self defense defenses forces, uh, the militias of the Donbass, just like NATO uh, was doing and has done uh, for the regime in Kiev. And so humanitarian aid, by the way, because the, the, the West had, you know, the, the Kiev, Kiev government basically cut off all kinds of regular supplies, food and, and whatever that they that normally came from the West. And, and, and there was humanitarian aid from Russia, lots of it, as a matter yes. of fact, that, that yes, there, you know, was the to relieve The blockade of the economic blockade of Donbass itself, right. a war crime, you know, uh, continues uh, yeah. to this day. So these battalions are the ones who, who, who did the fighting in the initial phases. Uh, they were defeated largely because a, a, a not insignificant portion of the Donbass militias was uh, military police and security forces, particularly from East Ukraine, that defected, that said, we don't agree w- with what happened in Kiev. 
you know, uh, that's not our government. We didn't elect them. They seized power. We're, we're, we're done with that, right? Um, and that is the frozen conflict that continues to this day. And it is true that the regime in Kiev agreed to the Minsk agreements in that bad military position of having its forces defeat, defeated twice in the Donbass, uh, whatever they may say, uh, by locals in the early uh, days of the conflict in, in uh, late 2014. In 2015, um, they did agree to it under pressure. But you know, now that they have purged and rebuilt their military along their own lines with people like this uh, Danilov, uh, Alexei Danilov, in charge, uh, of course, now they say they have no intention of fulfilling uh, the Minsk obligations, despite right. it being backed by Western countries uh, at the, at least rhetorically and enshrined uh, in the UN Security Council. And Danilov went on to say uh, during uh, this uh, diatribe he delivered, where he said, you know, he talked. Well, so um. Why why would this lead to the instability of the country with the Minsk Accords? Of course, because the far right and the ultranationalists, these band right fascists, they would not accept the Minsk Accords, right? Because they would not accept the political reconciliation of the country. As as far as they're concerned, the only way that the people of East Ukraine, Donbass, could be reintegrated into Ukraine is in complete subjugation and, and political right. repression because right. their pro-Russian views or not not anti-Russian views anyway are, are not acceptable in the new Ukraine. Right. Uh, well, know, this is exactly they what they did at the time of the coup. Yeah. Yanukovych yeah. had negotiated a deal with members of the EU and, and uh, who basically said the opposition and uh, the government will sit down and here's a, here's a deal. We're going to share power. We're going to do this. And, and while that was happening... And while, when that agreement was struck, and, and the West was supposed to be a guarantor to it, these people stormed the buildings, and you know, Yanukovych had to escape with his life and his family's life, and they, they, they took power despite having an agreement to the contrary. So contrary, yeah, now, that was the February 21st agreement. Yeah, so what, why would you expect EU, any different Whereby now? Yanukovych stood down all of the police in Kiev, right. uh, which resulted in a night where they, they just seized control of the Rada, right. and then they, they, they stormed the presidential administration um, uh, just hours uh, with very little resistance because the yep. police were stood down. Because Yanukovych, a naive, uh, you know, willing to believe, uh, you know, France and Germany at the very least, you know, thought that, right. uh, you know, a power sharing agreement was was the result, uh, you know, between uh, the the leaders of of the Maidan uh, and the existing government, uh, at least, you know, until the, the next election scheduled for 2015. But right. what he got was, uh, you know, when the police stood down, the far right, you know, took over and then his he was. Yes, he fled the country because, <laughs> you know, the people that had just killed dozens uh, of dozens, killed dozens of police and injured hundreds um, and seized control of the country. These these uh, nascent battalions headed by Peruby, um, you know, were, were seizing control of the country. Why is that guy and, and, got a rope in his hand? Who's that for? I wonder. And, and, and you know, not for yeah, nothing. It, this is not. Uh, antithetical okay uh or antithetical to the situation that we have now where russia seeing this crazy stuff and seeing nato coming to its you know coming up to its border now puts troops on its own border you know as basically a defensive wall and the, the west is saying 
remove them. Stand them down, and we'll stand our guys down. The, the Russians are going to be looking at it like, you must be crazy. Yeah, well, of course, Russia is saying the U.S. is putting troops you know, in Eastern Europe. Uh, according uh, to the Russian foreign ministry, there are some 10,000 NATO trainers and advisors, quote, unquote, in Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, Russia, um, they have had, you know, um, uh, cycling of buildups, uh, particularly to deter the regime in Kiev from returning to offensive operations, right. uh, at least large scale uh, over the past few years. However, I think there are good reasons to believe that this military buildup uh, is substantially different and that that Russia and announcing clearly that their red lines have been crossed and unable to achieve the security guarantees that they sought from the U.S. and and NATO uh, and uh, also uh, meaning that the the U.S. is is and the other NATO states are completely unwilling to force their client uh, regime uh, to fulfill the Minsk Accords um, and, you know, the the frozen conflict with the shelling and the economic blockade and the, the you know the the misery continues uh in the donbass the, then that they may uh, they they've talked of military technical um measures to achieve their own security basically saying all options are on the table and right. at this point a russian intervention in ukraine is not firmly decided on, but it's definitely one of those options that the Russian military has put into play, not by the massing of large numbers of troops directly on the Ukrainian border, but by changing their force posture in Western Russia um, and basically um, creating logistical centers, staging grounds where the, uh, s- uh, several hundred kilometers back from Ukraine, where large amounts of military equipment, supplies, everything have essentially been prepositioned, ready for right. troops uh, from elsewhere in the country to to come on what could be relatively short notice. Uh, we're still talking a week, right? At least. Um, right. If there is going to be a Russian intervention in Ukraine, and that is only one of the options, again, I don't believe that anything has been decided on. There are other lesser options. But if that is decided on, I would I would take a look towards uh, the end of February uh, after the Olympics. Uh, Russia certainly wouldn't would would try to avoid, um, uh, you know, disrupting the Olympics of their their strategic partner and de facto ally, uh, China, if they can avoid it, if they can safely avoid it. Um, But um, I mean, this this situation, the situation they see continues. I mean, before this crisis, Russian was the daily language of actually at least half, if not the majority of Ukrainians. Um, And the language has effectively been driven completely from the public sphere. I mean, uh, it's been driven out of the media. It's been uh, driven out of the print press. Um, it's been driven off of TV, um, the, you know, the, uh, government services. Um, and, uh, you know, it's gone further. Uh, if you if you are a waiter at a restaurant, right, anywhere in the country, even in the Russian speaking East, and if you reply to uh, your customers uh, 
in Russian without getting their approval, you could actually be fined and possibly go to jail. That's how Come ridiculous on. it is. Can I ask you a and, question? Because you speak, you speak yeah. both, right? Your wife is... is uh... my, my wife speaks both. I do okay. not speak Ukrainian. No, 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 so but let me ask you this question. Yeah. I, I have... I, my Russian, I have maybe a vocabulary of two, three dozen words and a, you know, a, a general understanding of, of basic grammar and uh, you know, declension conjugation rules. Um, and I can read the alphabet, sight read, you know, that, that I, I, I got. So to me, having been in Moscow and having been in Kiev, with the exception of one or two letters, it's, I don't see much of a difference. I, I'm sure there are differences in, in spoken, but my, my guess, and I, and I probably shouldn't have said, but I've said several times for people here to understand, you're talking about like the difference between, say, uh, you know, uh, New Orleans Patois or something um, and uh, L.A. slang in terms of no, difference. No, it's, it's, it's a more, greater it's difference. It's more substantial than that. It is. It's more substantial than that. I can understand generally somewhere between 30 and 40%. Oh, really? Oh, it's that Ukrainian different. Okay. Um, it's, uh, Ukrainian is often, and I think not entirely incorrectly described as a, you know, uh, half Russian with about 30% Polish and, German, and a little bit of, yeah. of else thrown into the mix. Yeah. Um, it is it is something that generally Russian and Ukrainian speakers, first of all, almost all Ukrainians speak Russian. Um, that's that, 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 that Soviet that's legacy, right, history. Yeah, so uh, you know, not just the Soviet legacy. Right. I mean, they, up until 2014, they were taught Russian in schools. And it has to be said that uh, my wife, for instance, from the Crimea, um, which is entirely Russian speaking, even in the Soviet Union, um, she was uh, forced to your, learn Ukrainian at school. Right. So it's not like the Soviet Union was repressing the, the Ukrainian language in any way, shape, or form. Right. She did actually did not like to learn Ukrainian. I, I don't myself. I don't consider it a bad thing that she had, had to learn it. Right. Um, you know, technically Crimea was you know, because of Khrushchev tran uh, transmitted at the time to to Ukraine, right. and I, I don't think it hurts anyone in the Soviet Union to speak Russian and Ukrainian and, you know, possibly a few other, you know, uh, uh, Soviet uh, state language, republic languages like Kazakh or something like that. But anyway, it's not like the Soviet Union was repressing Ukrainian. And right. this Alexei Danilov, this secretary of the National Security and Defense Council, he went on to say that um, the use of the Russian language itself in the world is unsafe. Whoa. Now, of course, he was giving this interview in Russian. <laughs> the no, iron, come on. You know, this is the insanity of of, of the regime in, oh in, in Kiev on on top of all of this. Uh, but um, you know, because Russian language might lead to sympathy with Russia or pro-Russian ideas, and well, that's treason in the Ukraine. Because yeah. an idea of a Ukraine that has a foreign policy that does not see Russia as the enemy, you know, that's that's verboten now. Right. That is yeah. treason. Right? Is that a German um, word? <laughs> that's, that's, that's almost as bad as saying that, you know, uh, uh, the U.S. should sanction Israel. I mean that that that's the <laughs> that's the equivalent Yikes. of you know of this uh you know, if you political know, the heresy yes the boycott yeah. divestment you know where it has actually been made illegal yes. in parts of the U.S. lots of parts to boycott Israel right you know and and it, it, it to suggest as a politician that Israel is anything less than 
um, you know, America's best friend basic, in the Middle East. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that is, you know, politically verboten. It's a third yeah. rail uh, yeah. in the United States. Yeah. Well, this is even more so, of course, uh, in the new Ukraine, you know, under, uh, under you know, the uh, the regime that seized power in 2014, uh, you know, and that that continues uh, up to this moment. And uh, right now, um Russian forces are continuing to to move again, not directly on the Ukrainian border. Uh, Ukraine actually has, or at least the Kiev regime has more forces directly on the border, some half of their military, at least 125,000 troops, than Russia does. Uh, at what people say is somewhere between 70 and the upper estimates go up to 120. But if you re- actually read into all of the serious reports beyond the headlines and, you know, the salacious first paragraphs, even the Washington Post w- has admitted that, well, there's some 70 to 90,000 Russian troops on the Ukrainian border, which is no different than what it has been since 2014 mm-hmm. and the civil conflict there broke out. Right. Um, but that. 175,000 could be gathered in short notice. <laughs> and that's that but but it's it's actually true, right? Yeah. To a degree, right. but so what? <laughs> that doesn't create the immediacy of the threatening headlines, you know, and the scaremongering. Uh, so, you know, everything is talking about a Russian troops massed on the Ukrainian border, you know, ready uh, as as barbarian hordes to to swoop in on this new brilliant pro-U.S. democracy, as as they refer to it, which could not be further from the, the, the political truth uh, yeah. about, you know, the regime in Kiev on the ground. But, you know, that that is the propaganda narrative. That is the rhetoric uh, yeah. with very little reflection in actual reality. Um, and I, like I said, I believe that Russia is considering a military intervention at this point. But the nuance, the details of it... You know, they think that American listeners are very simple and need to be led around by the nose and nuance and complicated arguments um, and uh, are simply, you know, something that would confuse the issue. Well, that's true. Uh, th- let me ask you something, by the way. I mean, you, you know, you, not, you're not from for Pennsylvania. Not listeners. Huh? <laughs> 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 of course not. You, you're from Pennsylvania, and you were in the U.S. military. Originally, yes. So you have a good idea of the geography and the population distribution and, and uh, infrastructure in the United States. Uh, how long would you estimate it would take for the U.S. to place 125,000 troops on the border with Canada or Mexico? Um, that's a good question. It would take... Um, Probably, I mean, upwards of a week. Yeah. Um, simply because the U.S. has so much of their military forces stationed overseas. Abroad, yeah, right. In other They'd have countries. to draft people first, that's right. Yeah, they would have to call up National Guard and reservists. Right, right. So right, I, no, right, I don't right. think they would have to draft people, but 100,000 troops is, is pretty significant. And the U.S. is simply, look at, um, the U.S. has two, you know, what have always been militarily uh, weak neighbors, right? right. Canada and Mexico. Right. And, and, you know, uh, they, they have the Monroe Doctrine where all of the Western Hemisphere is, 
is 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 regarded as their sphere of influence. And if Mine. you want to think that that's ancient history, you only had to look at statements by um, Rex Tillerson and John Bolton in the right. last administration know, saying right. the Monroe Doctrine is very much alive and yep. well. Yep. And just recently, at suggestions from the press that Russia may seek to reopen military bases in Cuba or establish them in Venezuela. Ooh, the response from the eye, White boy. House was, <laughs> well, if that was the case, we would take decisive action. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. have an entire hemisphere as our immediate first layer sphere of influence yeah, and right. the entire world as the our second layer second right. or third layer sphere right. of influence occupied but russia basically. Yeah, right. is not allowed any sphere of right. influence that's right, right? Nope. not even inside russia that's what they're doing we got about not about, even inside russia evidently yeah. <laughs> we got about 30 seconds um what uh what would you say looking over the next week or so after looking at the UN yesterday is going to happen next? And now we got about yeah, 20 uh, seconds. So China uh, uh, full-throatedly supported Russia at the UN. Uh, um, I expect uh, the tensions to continue. I expect a slow Russian military buildup. Russia will formally respond to the U.S. reply to their security guarantees. But I think that is kind of politically stalling at this point. Uh, okay. I think things are being set in motion, um, and uh, Russia has either got to, uh, you know, back down at this point from their military buildup or act on it. Mark, thank you very much. I uh, hope it's some third <laughs> outcome, and we'll speak again next week, hopefully. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. And that's all the news we have for you right now. For Community Public Radio, I'm Don DeBar in New York. Thanks for listening.